Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus and what he gave to us on the old rugged cross. That through his shame, by taking our sins, he has given us eternal life, forgiveness, and life more abundantly. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you and happy Sabbath. It's good to see you today. I've been really enjoying our Sabbath school lessons, haven't you? Last Sabbath, we were studying about Jacob and Jacob's trouble. And there are some points there that really caught my attention. I just want to cover a little bit this morning. Some bullet points that I think really means a lot to us today. Because uh, there's a quotation that I, that's in the Bible and also in Ellen White's writings that says, Jacob's experience during that night of wrestling and anguish represents the trial through which the people of God must pass just before the second coming. And in Jeremiah chapter 30, it says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Amen. So the Jacob's trouble is a time of extreme spiritual battle that Satan is attacking his people. And Ellen White says this happens at the close of probation when Jesus stands up and we are sealed either with the righteousness of God or the wicked have sealed their fate forever in being separated from God. And so this time of trouble is a time to where, like Jacob, we see danger surrounding us. Jacob saw the danger of who? His brother Esau, coming with 400 men. And he and his family and his kids, they had, hot, they had flocks and herds, of, that they were, were vulnerable. <clears throat> and so... At night, he spent the night in prayer. And as you remember the story, he felt a strong hand grabbing his shoulder. And he fought to get that hand released, and he wrestled all night, the Bible says. And at the break of day, the assailant said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. But Jacob would not let go, and, and, and the angel of God, which we believe is the Son of God, touched his hip and immediately went out of joint. And then he knew he was wrestling with God. And at that time, it's interesting that the angel of God, the Son of God, said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. A few hours earlier, Jacob was trying to get away from him. But God would not let go of him. And it's encouraging to us that when we're going through our time of trouble, God will not let go of us. He will hold us. And we're not to be afraid like Jacob, but to let him embrace us, to protect us, to lead us and guide us, and face the danger. Because when we face danger, we can't always see the result. I was encouraged by the testimony this morning about your home. You didn't know how things were going to work out, but you prayed. And so 
we don't know how things are going to work out, but God does have a plan. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> some of the points that I want to bring up is that Jacob's trouble began long before the trouble beside the brook when he was praying all night. Jacob's trouble began when he deceived his brother Esau. He brought that, that, that pain, that anguish, that trouble upon himself. And when we cause trouble in our home, when we deceive or trick or lie or do something to hurt other people, that causes a lot of trouble. Amen? And so Jacob's trouble began there. And then when he deceived his father to receive the blessing so that Esau wouldn't get it, he tried to work out his own, his own solution. The Bible calls us trying to work out your own salvation. God has a plan. We need to trust in him to work out our salvation, to work out our problems, and to claim the promises in the word of God that he will be with us and he will bless us. And so as you know the story, when he deceived his father Isaac, he had to leave because Esau was so angry, he threatened to kill him. And so he left, went to Bethel. <clears throat> After being a long journey, he fell asleep. And God reminded him that he still loved him. He had the vision of the ladder going to heaven and the angels coming up and down. What encouragement, what a vision it was that Jacob knew that the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac still loved him and still cared for him. My friends, when you are running, when you are fearful, when you're traveling, God loves you. His angels will be with you. Now, Jacob had to serve a time of probation with Laban for about 20 years. And even though he was a little mistreated, uh, let's just say that he expected to marry Rachel after seven years. He was tricked. The deceiver was deceived. And he got Leah as a big surprise in the morning. And then Laban said, well, you can have Rachel if you work another seven years. Now, we always focus on Jacob. And Jacob really said, okay, I will, you know, it's kind of like, he had no choice. He had to make the best of the situation because he knew he couldn't go back because Isaac, Isaac uh, was, and Esau, he had deceived them. And so Esau was still, still a threat. So he had to make the best of the situation. But have you ever thought about what Rachel was thinking or what she went through? Imagine your fiancé at the day of the wedding marry somebody else, your sister. And imagine the, the, the rift between the two sisters. Do, do sisters always get along? No, not always. And with, when this happens, I, I think Rachel was really upset at her sister. And we see this later on between them and their children. And I can imagine what a dysfunctional situation in that home that happened. And especially when Leah started having children, that 
Rachel really felt angry that she was not being blessed. And can you imagine what that would be like for Rachel, <clears throat> that she was the, the hopeful bride of Jacob, but then Leah, who happens to be also his wife, is having children, but she has none. And it's interesting, when you study infertility, there's definitely a factor with stress. When a woman is going through stress and the hormones, things are being uh, really disrupted. And so I think that may have been a factor as to why she could not conceive. But finally she does. God did give her Joseph as her son. Another bullet point we find is that when they left, after 20 years, God gave uh, Jacob a dream that says, okay, it's now it's time to go back home, that when they left, Rachel took the, the graven images, the idols that were in the home that belonged to her father. And so here we see Rachel being a little upset, I think, at her father and paying him back and taking away his valued possessions. Now, we find later on that Jacob buried these idols because he was told to go from where he was to where? The promised land. And here's a message that is very important for us today is all of us are looking forward to what? The promised land. And do we have idols that we maybe should be burying and not taking with us? Yes. We need to bury those idols, and we say, well, we don't worship idols. Well, think about what an idol represents. It's anything that you're putting in place or in front of or before your worship of God. So all of us may have some idols in our homes, in our lifestyle, that we need to bury before we go to the promised land. Another interesting thought was, there were two hosts of heavenly angels that traveled with them. If you have your Bibles, let's look at that in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 32. And in verse 1 it says, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahan Eam. I probably mispronounced that, but it means a camp of two angels. And as we, we read about this, we find that, that they were angels that were traveling in front of and behind Jacob's group with his family as a sign of protection, as a token of divine care. So in uh, the books, Patriarchs and Prophets, this is what Ellen White expounds on and gives us more information. Again, the Lord granted Jacob a token of divine care as he traveled southward toward or from Mount Gilead. Two hosts of heavenly angels seemed to encompass him behind and before advancing with his company as if for their protection. Jacob remembered the vision at Bethel so long before, and his burdened heart grew lighter at this evidence 
that the divine messengers who had brought him hope and courage in his flight from Canaan were to be the guardians of his return. And he said, this is God's host. And then he called the name of that place Mahanian, two hosts or two camps. Does God send angels to guide and protect us today? Or is that just only 2,000 years ago? I know some of you have had personal experiences where God has protected you and your life with an angel, whether seen or unseen. And there are many angel stories. And I'm just going to share with you one of them from a, uh, a book that was written by Lonnie Melashenko. It's a very short story. It's called Angels Among Us. And one of the first stories in here is about the man who could not be killed. This is what he writes. Does God still send angels to protect his people as he did in Bible times? Well, during a revolutionary period a few years ago in an African country that is still in political turmoil, Mike Pearson served as a pastor in a large district situated in the midst of the conflict. Three times a week, he had to drive on a main highway where the traffic was sparse because of guerrilla activity. Now, guerrilla, boys and girls, does not mean animals like the guerrilla or monkeys. These are terrorists. These are soldiers that uh, fight and kill. Anyone who traveled that way was subject to be killed without cause. But Pastor Mike was faithful, and several times a week, about For about two years, he drove along this road as he fulfilled his pastoral duties. Finally, the day came when the two sides declared a truce and the shaky peace returned to that African country. So one day, Pastor Mike had some official business to conduct at the government's office. After completing his errand, he came out of the building and was astonished to be greeted by a tall man in military dress with bandoliers and grenades attached to his uniform. With a genial smile, the soldier said to Pastor Pearson, Sir, I'd like to shake your hand. Pastor Mike is a friendly person, but this approach from a stranger took him by surprise, and so he answered, Well, why would you want to do that? Well, the soldier replied, I'd like to shake the hand of the man that we could not kill. Pastor Mike said, Well, Please explain. Did you not travel on the main highway every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday and pass the midpoint at about 10 a.m.? And on those days in your brown Toyota wagon? Well, yes, Pastor Mike answered, his curiosity rising. Well, sir, on seven different occasions, my fellow guards and I tried to kill you. Our plan was to shoot you as you drove by, and each time you came along, we had you clearly in sight from our post in the bush. But our guns refused to work when we pressed the triggers. As soon as you drove out of range, our guns would work again. We carefully tested our AK-47s before and after your passing through that way, and they worked flawlessly. But then they simply would not fire when we directed them at you. It could only have been a spirit or an angel that kept our guns from working. So that's why I'd like to shake your hand. God is on your side or 
you're on his. What a strange experience it must have been for Pastor Pearson to shake the hand of his would-be assassin. But how gratifying for him to know that he was under the care of angels even when he was oblivious of any danger. The Bible says in Psalms 91, 11, And he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. God is good. He has his mighty angels. And when we're doing his work, we don't have to worry. We can put our trust in him. So, getting back to the story of Jacob, he had to face his brother who had promised to kill him if he came back. And he had, knowing this, he knew that he had put his family in danger because of his sins and his mistakes. And so Jacob wrestled that night during that prayer with God. And this is something that caught my eye because this is what we are told that we are to experience ourselves when we go through our own time of trouble, our own Jacob's trouble. Jacob's experience during the night of wrestling and anguish represents the trial through which the people of God must pass just before Christ's second coming. The prophet Jeremiah in the Holy Vision looking down to this time said, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. And all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. When Christ shall cease his work as mediator in man's behalf, then this time of trouble will begin. That means that's the close of probation. Things are set in place. Then the case of every soul who has been decided, there will be, will be decided, and there will be no atoning blood to cleanse from sin. When Jesus leaves his position as man's intercessor before God, the solemn announcement is made, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. This is from Revelation chapter 2, 22, 11. And then the restraining spirit of God is withdrawn from the earth. And as Jacob was threatened with death by his angry brothers, so the people of God will be in peril from the wicked who are seeking to destroy them. And as the patriarch wrestled all night for deliverance from the hand of Esau, so the righteous will cry to God day and night for deliverance from the enemies that surround him. So here's, here's the point. Probation is closed. In Jacob's trouble, we, we find that no one will be killed because their, their time is, is, their salvation is set. It's not a trouble of, of being hurt or, or killed. It's a time where we are struggling with our sins. And Satan is there to accuse us that we've, we've sinned too much. We're not worthy to be saved. And so it is time of, <clears throat> of pleading to God to lead and to direct us and to forgive us and to give us that confidence to know that he is with us. 
when we look at these promises, we see that God is there to be with us. And one of the promises that, that I like is found in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you'd like to turn with me. Romans chapter 8 and verse 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> Whatever situation that we are in, we can know that we are not separated from the love of God. A few weeks ago, we <clears throat> had Memorial Weekend, and we were remembering, remembering uh, our soldiers, those that have given their lives for our country, and for those loved ones that have passed away. And so this, this time, we have to remember that these, these men <clears throat> are just like you and I that when we're faced with battle, with a job that they have to do, that we can be very afraid of that. They have emotions as well. And so the U.S. Marine Corps has chaplains to be with the Marines as they go into battle. And my wife and I, when we were up in Tahoe, we went to a little... Uh, Goodwill store to get some toys for the kids because the kids were coming, the grandkids were coming, we needed some toys for them. And while Joy was finding some toys for them, I found a little uh, book library there that they had at the Goodwill. And I found this book just kind of sitting on a table, and it's called A Table in the Presence by Lieutenant Carrie H. Cash. And it's a dramatic account of how a U.S. Marine battalion experienced God's presence in the midst of chaos in the war in Iraq. As a chaplain to the Marines, Lieutenant Kerry Cash heard the muttered prayers for courage from the thousand-plus men from the Fighting Fifth, the first ground force to cross Iraqi borders during the Operation Iraqi Freedom. He also heard with tearful prayers when one of the most beloved leaders became the war's first American casualty. But more than anything, he heard prayers for protection whispered by each Marine as the battalion moved into the presence of the enemy. On April 10, 2003, the 1st Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, marched into downtown Baghdad to seize Saddam Hussein's presidential palace only to find themselves ambushed by militants hiding in mosques, storefronts, and homes. Hundreds of troops were caught face-to-face -face with a blitz of rocket-propelled grenades, or RPGs, gunfire, and sure defeat. Yet the reports tell a different story. A rocket splicing its way through an armored vehicle packed with Marines hits no one. A Marine finds a bullet's entrance and exit holes in his helmet, yet he has no injury. His squad of Marines watch in amazement as their enemies prepare to fire from point-blank range and then pause and drop their weapons, running away in terror. The RPG fired only a few yards away 
inexplicably swerves and misses the intended target. It's amazing that these stories reveal to us that the Marines did, many prayed, not all of them, but many prayed for protection and asked for the angels to be with them. Many of them claim, claim the promises in uh, Psalms 91. It talks about a fortress of God, a safe hiding place in him. And I remember uh, our John Dorn, when he talked about the time when he was in Vietnam, that one of the first few days he was there, the camp that he was staying was hit by mortar rockets. And not knowing what was going on, he started to look out the window, and he heard a voice clearly tell him, get down. And so he jumped down between two bunk beds, just as a mortar explodes right outside the window and blows through the window where he was just looking out seconds before. And so he looked around and there was no one there. An angel spoke to him and told him to get down. A story that I'll never forget, and I'm sure if John was here, he would love to tell that story again. Well, after they they did uh, get these Marines into the the presidential palace in Iraq, they began to share stories of what happened and what it was like. And the chaplain uh, wrote this book about these experiences that they went through as they went into Iraq. And one of the stories I like to share begins with uh, how he talks to the men and they're sharing with them their experience as they came out of this battle. How could I forget the look on Corporal Avani's Dawson's face when our Humvee drove through the gates of the palace? Smiling from ear to ear, he was sitting behind a stack of sandbags that served as a machine gun guard post. A rifle in one hand and a thick white gauze wrapped in the other, he weighed proudly. He had been shot in the hand. He wanted our incoming vehicle to see his injury, not because he was looking for sympathy, For him, that injury symbolized the triumph that he and so many others had experienced. His radiant smile was far more than a benign look of relief. I had baptized Dawson as a new Christian just weeks earlier. So as the chaplain was ministering to these guys, as they were getting ready to go into battle, he was baptizing these Marines left and right. He was praying with them. And a chaplain has to be a chaplain to all these men of different religions. And so he's a chaplain to Catholics and Methodists, Baptists, and and all kinds, just doing his best to meet their needs. And some have given their lives before they went into battle, and now they were praising God. Chaplain Dawson Grand, remember those angels, the ones your wife talked about, the legions? They were there surrounding us and protecting us, defending us, because I should be dead right now. Chaplain, but God was with me. This young African-American Marine was referring to a worship service I'd given two weeks earlier, about 80 miles south of Baghdad. And in the service, I had shared with the men a prayer that my wife, Charity, as a third grader, had learned from her parents. Their family said this little prayer as they headed out on their road trips together. 
And it went something like this. Dear Lord, make the driver awake, aware, alert, and aggressive, and surround us all with four legions of angels wherever we go. Amen. It was just a little girl's prayer, yet it convened a promise of God's protection, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. That has breathed, breathed the courage and faith into warriors for thousands of years. I could never have imagined how many men have been clinging to that promise when the round started to shoot and started flying <coughs> April 10, 2003. But they believed it, and the angels were there. All day I listened to their stories. Alpha Company's Lance Corporal James Miller and countless others recall that they saw waves of RPGs screaming straight for them, shot from point-blank range. Yet at the last second, the missiles curved widely as they had been batted away with by something in midair. Sailing completely around the AAVs and the RPGs struck buildings and the other side of the road, buildings that were teeming with enemy gunmen. The AAVs is the all-terrain type of vehicles that they, they drove in. <laughs> Private First Class Timothy Pulaski recalled an, a, an RPG that was heading straight for him. This is a rocket-propelled grenade that explodes like a bomb when it hits. It was going straightly toward their Humvees, and they were seemingly pushed down into the street pavement like smooth rocks bouncing across a glassy pond. The missiles skipped along without exploding beneath their vehicles. They finally blew up when they hit the curb or storefronts across the road. Adam McCauley's vehicle was the first to enter the ambush at the Tigris River Bridge. McCauley recalled the innumerable muzzle flashes coming from each side of the street. <clears throat> Captain Blair Solkel, riding three vehicles back, concurred after watching Macaulay full of Marines moving through the ranking fire said in that moment I felt certain that my men were gone there were too many muzzle accounts to to account for Sokol should have been right and Macaulay's men were standing on top of their AAV, AAVs firing back they were totally exposed but for some reason not a single man was hit in the melee <clears throat> I'll take time just to read uh, one more experience here. <clears throat> Finally, Jackway recalled, Charlie Company found what seemed to be the right way. <clears throat> they had <clears throat> hit a roundabout, <clears throat> and there were two turns to the right. They were supposed to turn right on the roundabout, and you know how roundabouts are? They'd be a little confusing. Well, they took the wrong right turn off the roundabout, and they got lost. <clears throat> and so Charlie Company found what seemed to be the right way, and then we immediately jerked our Humvee around to get behind them, hoping they would take us to the palace. It was at, at that very moment when every man in Jack Way's vehicle should have been killed. Without warning, from point-blank range, an RPG struck the driver's side door frame, 12 inches from where the driver, low was sitting. It sent waves of fire and shrapnel rippling through the cramped compartment. It was the kind of direct hit that often leaves no human remains in the aftermath. In short, a high-explosive rocket exploded with all of its force inside the cabin. 
of an armored Humvee manned by four men. As the rocket struck the door frame, it was as if an unseen hand channeled its force. The brunt of the round's explosion passed through the driver's open window and impacted with full force the inside of the front glass. <clears throat> the windshield exploded from the inside out. And in a millisecond of deafening sound and overpressure, the thick bulletproof front glass windshield disintegrated into a fireball. Thousands of jagged chards showered the paved road in front of Jackway's still-moving Humvee like a deadly rainstorm. All four men were engulfed in a scorching wall of heat and flames. Marines driving behind Jackway's Humvee saw the hit. They knew beyond a doubt that America had just lost four boys. Calls burst through the radios and headsets of the other vehicles. Tomahawk 1 is down. Tomahawk 1's down. Docks. We need docks now. These are the moments in battle so profound that the warriors who face them recount a peaceful and momentary pause in the violence of bombs and bullets exploding around them. In such moments <clears throat> are almost quiet, although perhaps accompanied by a slight ringing of sound <laughs> of a bomb going off. Voices and other voices other noises are muffled. Actions are reduced to slow motion. And the lines between life and death seem blurred. Time literally stands still. It was into such a surreal realm that Jackway and his men were plunged the moment the rocket exploded in their vehicle. Perhaps it was death, they thought. It should have been. But opening his eyes after the blinding flash, Jackaway grabbed his chest and arm. He kept pounding and squeezing to make sure he was still there. Dear God, I'm alive, he shouted. Without looking at Lowe, the driver, or the other two Marines sitting behind him, Jackaway immediately picked up his radio and started calling in casualties. This is Tomahawk 1. <laughs> we have wounded. I have wounded. It didn't bother. He didn't bother to look behind him. He just knew very well that one could not have emerged from such an explosion alive, much less unscathed. But as he pulled away his handset from his ear, he glanced behind him and beside him anyway. And there sat the others, fully alive and uninjured. Jackaway looked over to Lowe, the driver, who was still driving with a smile on his face. Are you hurt? He screamed. Did it get you? And like a worried parent, Jackaway began frisking the body of his driver. He knew that it's not uncommon for men who are mortally wounded to go into battle, I mean to be in battle for a few seconds or even minutes and not realize they've been hit or they are dying. Lowe had been sitting precisely where the blast had occurred. He had to be wounded. I knew he probably just couldn't feel it, so Jackaway told me, he told me, I started running my hands down his back, up his legs, up his neck, patting him down, looking for an entry wound or an exit wound where shrapnel had hit, and there was nothing. There was nothing. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Finally, Jackaway commanded the now rejoicing low with no windshield in front of him to keep driving through the fire. Don't stop. Don't stop. Press on. We're going to make it.
My friends, when we are facing the enemy, those words, press on, press on, we're going to make it, is something that we can encourage one another as we face our time of trouble. As, as Jacob had to go back to meet his brother, he realized that he had done something terribly wrong in deceiving his brother. And he realized that there would have to be a reconciliation. And my friends, when we go to the promised land, where we're heading on that journey to the promised land, we need to reconcile our brothers and our sisters whom we have hurt. We have to sincerely do all that we can to make things right with them. Because when we hold something against somebody, when we hold anger, the Bible says that we're not even supposed to take an offering to the to sanctuary without asking for forgiveness and making things, things right. And when we do, we enter into the ministry of reconciliation. If you'd like to turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians. Oh, excuse me. That's another verse. I'll go to it later on. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. <clears throat> this is one of my favorite verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God has given each one, every one of you, a ministry of reconciliation, of reconciling people back to God, to reconciling those in our families that maybe we have hurt, to reconcile people that are around us that are hurting. It is our ministry to reconcile people to God. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I believe there's definitely a correlation between these two verses and that we are to help reconcile to one another. I know sometimes churches have divisions, sometimes feelings are hurt, but as brothers and sisters in the faith, <coughs> we need to reconcile to one another because in order to do to receive the righteousness of God, we need to do all that we can to make things right. And this is what Jacob did. He reconciled with Esau by giving him gifts, several gifts in a row <clears throat> that he tried to let his brother know that he was not coming uh, to try to maintain his birthright or his privileges. 
He gave it all to Esau. All that Jacob wanted was the spiritual blessing, and Esau really didn't care for that. And so because of this, God did bless him, and he was reconciled. And when he met Esau, they ran together, and they hugged, and they cried, and they forgave each other. It is such a sweet feeling to feel forgiven and to take that burden off our shoulders and say, oh, I forgive you. Please forgive me. And to hug your brother and your sister and to say, okay, we're all right now. I understand. I will never do anything to hurt you again. I will try to make things right. I'll do my best to protect you, to help you, and to guide you. This is something that we all need to learn in our travel to the promised land. I want to close with a verse. This is back to Ephesians. Because we are in, still in a battle. We are still in the enemy's territory here on earth. And I want to encourage you to claim this promise every day found in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Where's our strength? It's in the Lord. In the power of whose might? The Lord's might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. <clears throat> Through the time that, <clears throat> that Jesus spent time on earth with his disciples and his resurrection and Pentecost and the time that, that he, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were changed. They became new creatures and even though the Spirit was with them, <clears throat> these disciples were asked to lay down their lives as a martyr. And so there will be martyrs. There has been. The Christians have been thrown to the lions. Huss and Jerome, during the Dark Ages, they were burned at the stake. There are Christians that love God, that have lost their lives in other countries where there is no religious freedom. And so there are casualties. <clears throat> but when we walk in the Spirit, when we have God's power with us, if it's not God's will, the AK-47s will not fire at us. If it's not God's will, no harm can come to us. 
And these disciples that did lay down their lives, it was a privilege for them to be a martyr in Christ's name. So I say to you, be strong. Walk in the Spirit and trust in Him. And nothing will happen to you that is not God's will. And our time here on earth is short. Jesus is coming soon. And so we need to remember that when God is with us, we don't have to worry. Our time of trouble will be a time where we just trust in God. He will take care of us. He will see us through. And soon we'll be reunited, be reunited with our loved ones in heaven. Amen.